0: You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. This morning, I had the opportunity and the privilege to teach a passage of Scripture that I love. I love Psalm 131. It is a passage of Scripture that has been Significant in my life and in my ministry, but back in 2017, this church blessed me with the opportunity to take a sabbatical. And during that summer, during that sabbatical, um, the Lord used this Psalm in particular, Psalm 131, to do some significant upheaval and um, recalibration in my own soul and in my own life. And really, since that um, that summer, where God spoke to me and worked in my life in a profound way through this tiny little Psalm. God continues to use this psalm in my life to do significant maintenance, kind of maintenance of my soul every week, almost sometimes every day. God is still using this psalm to do maintenance in my life. Um, How many of you guys do regular maintenance on your home or on your car? Go ahead and raise your hand. Yeah, we, we see the value in regular maintenance. If you, if you are a gardener, I know some of you are gardeners, you, you know the value in tending the garden, doing regular uh, maintenance, tending of the soil and, and of the plants. And In many ways, that's what this psalm is. Uh, it is a psalm of maintenance. It is a, a tool, a prayer, a tool for God's people to use to tend the soil of their own soul as we live the Christian life and we walk the road of discipleship. In fact, Psalm 131 helps us reset and recalibrate our souls to their ideal position. Did you know that the human soul has an ideal operating position? Did you know that? Maybe you could think about like when you buy a new toy or a new gadget, it often comes with an owner's manual and the owner's manual exists to tell you kind of the ideal operating position for whatever it is that you just purchased. This is the way it works best, so follow these instructions. If you don't uh, kind of operate this way, then you're going to ruin the toy or the gadget. The same is true for our soul. It has an ideal operating position, and that position is humble, dependent trust in God. God created us. We were created by God and for God. And the ideal operating position of the human soul, the, the way that life works best, the path To human flourishing is when we live in humble, trusting dependence upon God. To be childlike, the psalmist says, resting in the arms of his mother. And the opposite is also true. To not follow these instructions, to, to not have our souls positioned in this humble, trusting dependence is, in fact, to do violence against our souls. To do violence against ourselves and in our relationships. So this is what this psalm is all about. This is what it's trying to help us avoid. The people of God, the the, the people who it's our job as God's people, as the church, to show the world what life with God looks like, to show the world what a life of hope and redemption and flourishing in God's ways is all about. It's to help us keep our hearts or recalibrate our lives back into a position of humble dependence upon a real and living God. And so... This short little psalm. It was written by David, the great king of Israel, and really, it's pretty simple. He does three things in verse one. David renounces pride. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in verse one. He he renounces pride in verse two. He then, in light of uh, renouncing the pride in his life, he tends his soul and finds peace. Turns and faith, and finds peace. And then in verse 3, he exhorts the rest of Israel to do the same, to recalibrate their lives as well, to get back into that right position and posture, to get away from pride and get back into dependence and trust upon God. And if you know David's story, you know that David didn't always live his life with this kind of humble dependence upon God. In fact. David learned the hard way the damage of pride. He learned the hard way the damage of autonomy and how destructive that it can be. And so he says to us, looking back at the text, starting in verse 1, he says this, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I love this psalm. You can, just reading it, you can kind of feel the reset of the soul, can't you? Just reading it. I mean, you can, you can imagine what reading this psalm every morning you know, as you wake up in the morning and you have that long to-do list, all of these things that you maybe are concerned about or worried about or stressed over, as you have this long to-do list, you can just feel what reading this psalm might do for your soul, just the exhale of the soul. Or, or if you read this and you prayed this every night before you went to bed, you know, as you lay in bed and you recount the day and you think about all your failures or all your mistakes, and, and you can just imagine what reading this psalm, praying this psalm before you go to bed could do for your soul, just whew. Rest, calm, quiet is my soul within me. In fact, in verse 1, David is very clear that we must express our humility before God if we want to find peace and calm and quiet for our soul. And it's interesting how David expresses humility. He really does it through three denials of pride. So he expresses humility through renouncing pride in three ways. We're going to spend quite a bit of time unpacking verse 1, so just buckle up and bear with me. It's important. David knows that to be proud, to be a proud person, is to be miserable. If you remember back last week in Psalm 130, we talked about the misery of sin and how sin makes us miserable. Well, David is, is, is saying pride, which is the root of all sin, makes us miserable. And so he, um, he, he knows that, that to be humble is the optimal way of life. And so he renounces pride in three ways. First, he says, my heart is not lifted up. He starts with the heart. My heart is not lifted up. This is really renouncing a haughty heart, a proud heart. Essentially, what this is doing is is, it's it's saying, I'm not going to see myself better than I am. In my heart, I'm not going to view myself as bigger or stronger or better than I am. I know that I'm weak and I know that I have limitations, and I'm embracing those. I don't see myself as haughty. I'm not in my heart proud and lifted up before God. It's also to say I'm not going to have a haughty heart in comparison with others. I'm not going to see myself as better and more powerful than others. Think about this, denial of pride. For the king of Israel, the king of the kingdom, is saying I'm not going to see myself as too big, for my britches. I'm not the bee's knees. I'm not the king of the castle, in other words. I know my true state. I recognize that in reality, I am weak and I am fragile. I am in need. I am not strong. I am in need of being dependent upon God. I want to ask you, do you see yourself this way? Do you see yourself this way? Are you prone to see yourself and view yourself as more self-sufficient than you really are? Are you prone to see yourself as maybe uh, better than others that are around you, my heart is not lifted up, he says. And then he, then he says, my eyes, my eyes are not raised too high. This is an admission that I am not all-knowing. I am not the wise one. Although he is the king, he's saying, I don't think that I see everything. I don't know everything there is to know. I don't see everything accurately. I lack wisdom i'm prone to misinterpret i'm prone to make assumptions i'm prone to inaccurately judge situations or to judge others i don't see it all i don't know it all he says and so my heart is not raised is not haughty my eyes are not raised too high i don't see it all i don't know it all i don't understand it all and then he says i do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. If you are a Bible underliner, underline the word occupy. In the Hebrew, it's the word halak. It's the same word that's used in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, where it talks about God would come and would walk with them in the cool of the, of the morning. It's, it really means halak, occupy here. I don't occupy. It means to, to live or to walk, to live or to be, So, which is a cool thought, right? Of, first of all, that same word used in Genesis of God coming and and being amongst them, walking with them, living amongst them, amongst Adam and Eve, before sin entered into the world. And so that, so psalmist says, I don't, I don't live, I don't walk, I, I, I'm not too great, I'm not too marvelous, or I'm not trying to do things that are too great or too marvelous. It's interesting, right? What he's doing here is he's renouncing the pride of selfish ambition. The pride of selfish ambition is what he's doing. And some of you this morning, without even realizing it, are living with this kind of vain ambition that that David is renouncing, that David lived with, that he's now turning from. And you might not even realize it. You're you're trying to to be something great or something marvelous. In your mind, you're aspiring to to be something uh, that, that that you don't have to be. And here's what we need to understand. Again, I said we might not even realize that this is happening to us, but it is. Social media is, uh, in many ways, kind of fueling this kind of pride in our life. This kind of pride that makes us think we have to be great or we have to be marvelous. Every day as you scroll your phone, it makes you feel like you need to be something better than you are. You see the things that other people are doing and you think, man, I need to be doing all of those things too. Social media screams to your soul, you're not enough. You aren't great, and you aren't marvelous. You aren't doing all the things, and you aren't being all the places. And this is an admission here of like, I, I can't be great, and I can't be marvelous, so I'm not going to try. I, I can't do all the things, and I can't be all the places. Social media can even make us feel like we need to be about all of the, 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 the problems in our world, that, we have to, that maybe we should be about trying to fix all of those issues i got to be everywhere and be about all the things and have all the things that my friends have and do all the things that my friends are doing. But in fact, it's arrogant for us to think that we can be great and that we can be marvelous. In fact, we will kill ourselves trying. More pride will even grow in our lives the more that we try and look great and do great things. And so what David is doing is he's denouncing this way of life. And what he's not saying is that I'm not aspiring to, to do great things for God. He's saying, in my own power and for my own sake, I'm not trying to look great or live great. I'm not trying to earn, but instead I will plant my feet on the ground. I will embrace where I am. I will live with real presence right here and right now. I'm not trying to be great or marvelous. I want to be faithful and present. You know, there's another way that we can interpret what he's saying here too, it's not only trying to be great, but it's trying to do great things. There's some of you that that's, you want to do great things. You're trying every day, you're waking up every morning, and you're trying to win. You want to win life. You want to conquer. You want to, you, want to, you, want to, you want to, the things that you do, the things that you leave behind, you want people to say, man, that guy, that girl, they did great things, marvelous things. I went through a season like this in my life where I wanted to conquer ministry. I wanted to win at ministry. And I even used a kind of godly, churchy language to, 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 for, you know, to kind of lay over this desire in me to want to win. I wanted to plant the greatest church. I wanted every sermon to be a winning sermon, to be a home run. I wanted to do great things for God. And thankfully, God humbled me because it was exhausting and it was soul-crushing. And God called me to embrace faithfulness. Aspire to be faithful. Not to be great and marvelous. Be faithful. Be faithful. And there are some of you who are obsessed with doing great and marvelous things with your life. The thought of being an ordinary, unimpressive person feels devastating to you. The the thought of being average in your career is devastating to you. The thought of raising kids who make B's and are average athletes, you can't even imagine that. And God is saying, be faithful. Plant your feet on the ground. Don't occupy yourself with things that are too marvelous. You see, David is denouncing this kind of pride. He's saying, this is not the way. Pride will leave you miserable. Pride will leave you constantly discontent. He's he's tending his soul by acknowledging pride of of the mind, pride of the heart, pride of the life. And he's saying, it's not the way. In fact, one commentator writes it this way. He says, turn from pride. The proud person looks and compares, and competes, and is never content. It's not the way. Hear me, church. We need to hear the words of Psalm 131. We need to embrace our limits. We need to admit our frailty. We need to avoid judging others and making assumptions and thinking that we have all the wisdom. We need to also turn from pride, renounce pride in our own life. You know, I think it's important that we pause for a moment here and that we even just take inventory, that we don't just move on too quickly, that we really examine our own hearts and our own lives and identify the pride, because pride is damaging. It is damaging to the soul. Pride is damaging to to your relationships. You know what will do the most damage to your marriage? Your own pride. It's damaging to the church. Pride damages the unity of the church and our witness in the world. And so I want to ask you this morning, in what ways are you proud? How is pride manifesting itself in your life right now? For some of you, it might be intellectual pride. It might be that, "Hey, listen, I have all the wisdom, or that what I know is, is really the highest. I'm smarter than these other people if they would just listen to me. Some of you, it might be theological pride. You know, that, this is what's interesting about theological pride. It's theological pride often can even keep us from God. It keeps us from God. I have the right theology, and so therefore I am fill in the blank. And we live with this theological pride. It's interesting that Jesus said to some, apart from me, you never knew me. And the word knew is intimacy. You knew a lot about me. You did great things for me, but you never knew me. You didn't come to me like a child and crawl up in my lap and, and enjoy time with me. You just knew a lot about me. For some of you, it's thinking that you see things correctly. It's judgments that are made. It's assumptions that are made. David French talks about how the greatest sin in the church right now is he calls it the sin of a suicide. That we are killing one another with assumptions. We think we know what other people are doing and we make judgments about them. And we destroy the unity in the church. The pride of thinking that we see things correctly. And that we make assumptions. Some of you, it's the pride of overworking, wanting to be great, obsessing, or even attention-seeking. How is pride manifesting in your life right now? You know, not only do we need to see our own pride... But we need to see it accurately. We need to see our pride for what it truly is. In other words, not just name the fruit of our pride, but understand the root of our pride. It's interesting how David breaks down pride here in verse 1. He talks about really kind of uh, um, heart, head, hands, and feet. It's a holistic in our lives, right? My, my heart, my eyes, I'm not going to walk or occupy myself, live into pride, In other words, essentially what David is saying is that I'm seeing myself accurately and I am not God. I am not God. See, there's three important attributes of God that every Christian needs to know and to daily trust. And it's this, number one, that God is the one who is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. God is the one who is all-powerful. God is the one who is strong and mighty. God is the one who is holding all things together together. He is the omnipotent one, not me. So my heart is not raised; is not haughty. I'm not God. I'm not omnipotent. God is also omniscient. God is the one who is all-knowing. He is the one who sees all and knows all. He is the source of all truth, not me. My eyes are not raised too high. I'm not God. I don't know. I don't see correctly. I don't understand it all rightly. And finally, God is omnipresent. God is the one who is everywhere. God is in all things. He is always with us. God is the one who is holding all things together. Christ Jesus is the one who is, is, is Lord over all. God is willing all things toward redemption. I don't have to be great. I don't have to do it all. I don't have to fix it all. God is the one who is omnipresent. He is with us and he is willing all things toward his end. in Jesus, exalted, raised in glory. You see, the convergence of all three of these attributes of God is the truth that God is sovereign. God is sovereign and he is good. God is sovereign and he is gracious. And so what David is doing, he's making this confession that God is the sovereign one, not me. God is great, therefore I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, life is not about me, it's about him and his glory. God is good, I can trust him in every situation, in every circumstance, he is enough. God is accomplishing his purpose. He will right every wrong. God is gracious and he's been gracious to me. I can be gracious to others. God has loved me and brought me in and called me and chosen me. I am enough. <sighs> Do you see? Do you see the beauty of turning from pride, of renouncing it across our lives, and saying, like a weaned child with its mother, I have calmed and quieted my soul? Do you see what a gift it is to stop trying to be God? Do you see what a gift it is to renounce pride and embrace humility, to come into God's presence, to allow Him to recalibrate our hearts? The way that it happens is when we acknowledge our pride, we turn from it, and we embrace a posture of humble trust and dependence. But we're not quite done yet with verse 1. It's important for us to understand that this is so countercultural to renounce pride, to say, I'm not God, to crawl up in God's lap and be humble and be dependent. It's important that we realize how countercultural this is. First of all, pride is the atmosphere of our culture. And it is the atmosphere of our culture because it is the default mode of the human heart. You know, we need to realize that we inherited pride from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Pride is the original sin. It's also the root of all sin. Pride is wanting to be God. Think about Adam and Eve reaching out apart from God, thinking that they could manage good and evil. They weren't content with being made in the image of God. They wanted to be God. They wanted to be like God. See, pride is what got Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden. Pride is what got Lucifer thrown out of the heavenly realms. Pride is what gets you and I thrown into all sorts of problems in our life. Pride is the default mode of the human heart. This is why Psalm 31 is a gift. That's why we need it for daily maintenance, tending our soul, because we are so prone to pride. And it is also the atmosphere of our world. Pride is the cultural air that we breathe. And so we need to be aware of this as Christians. We need to be aware of it. Because if we're not aware of it, we might subscribe to it. And if we subscribe to it, there's a lot of problems. See, we've been on this trajectory in Western culture for the last 300 years, away from God, being central, away from God and toward humanism or secularism. And it's an experiment that is failing us. It's the air that we breathe, and it's failing us. Mark Sayers defines secularism this way. He says it's it's wanting progress without presence. What he means is God's presence. It's thinking that we on our own, apart from God, can, can, can you know, pro- progress forward in this world without him. Or he says it another way. It's wanting the kingdom without the king. It's wanting the stuff of the kingdom in the here and now. Peace and equity and shalom and grace and mercy and provision. All the stuff that Jesus is going to bring on earth as it is in heaven upon his return. It's wanting all of those things, but thinking that we can do it on our own. The kingdom without the king. It's the belief, humanism, that human beings can solve all the problems of the world in their own power. It's the thinking that if we can just get the majority more enlightened with the right ideologies and then we'll argue about what are the right ideologies and we'll try to get rid of the things that in our own human wisdom we think are bad ideologies and replace them with our better ideologies. If we could just get everyone more educated and enlightened. If we could just kind of get the right science and the right medicine and the right technology all to come together at the right time, then we can heal all the aches Of the world. We can, on our own, apart from God, find a way to heal all the aches of the human soul. But do you see the pride? Do you see the problem? Human beings aren't the solution. We are the problem. A pastor friend of mine said one time donuts don't cure diabetes. We don't fix ourselves, we don't have the power or the ability. We can't save ourselves and heal ourselves. We first need to be fixed and saved and redeemed and healed. See, the enlightenment, the humanism experiment isn't going well. In fact, there's a, a sociologist who has done some research and says that this current generation of human beings on planet Earth is the most in-depth, overweight, addicted, and depressed generation of human beings who have ever lived On planet earth. Humanism. It's a failed experiment. It's killing us. So people want to get rid of God. There's other people, though, that don't necessarily want to get rid of God altogether. Their pride manifests in a different way. There's some that just want to remake God in their own image. In fact, this has kind of become a little bit buzzy. It's this idea of deconstruction. I'm going to deconstruct my faith. And now let me say this. There are some things that do need to be deconstructed. Some people do need to do the work of deconstructing. There's a lot of unhealthy, bad theology. There's a lot of people that have been in unhealthy bad churches. And those things do need to be deconstructed and replaced with with good orthodox and good healthy theology and good healthy churches. But this isn't the trend. The trend is this prideful move of creating God in my own image. There's some things about God that I don't really like. And so I'm going to kind of deconstruct my faith. And what ends up happening is that people just reconstruct God in whatever image they want him to be in their own image. Really, some people will make God this, you know, white middle-class Republican, American God. Others will make God this, you know, kind of a liberal God who affirms everyone and won't ever dare send anyone to hell. How could a loving God do that? That's who God is, whoever I want him to be. Do you see the pride? Pride is everywhere in our culture. We are so prone to it in our own hearts, even as Christians. And so what is my point? My point is that our souls need constant tending, turning from pride, embracing humility, and David, David is showing us how to do that, how to turn from pride, how to renounce it. He is showing us and reminding us that the optimal state of the soul is humble submission and dependence upon God. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Rejecting the hopeless lie that we can be our own God, rejecting the embarrassing truth, the, I'm sorry, embarrassing attempt to make God in our own image, and by grace, through faith, doing what Eugene Peterson calls accepting the terms of creation. Just accepting the terms of creation. That God is our maker and that he and he alone is our only hope. He is also our redeemer. Turning to Jesus as our savior. Submitting to Jesus as our Lord. Giving up on trying to control everything. Trying to know it all. Trying to fight it all. Trying to do it all. Calming quieting our soul, coming to God in trust and dependence. He says in verse 2, but, or it could be translated rather, so rather than thinking I'm God, (laughs) trying to act like I'm God, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. He says a calm and quiet soul in a chaotic and noisy world. Hope in my soul in the midst of injustice. Peace in my soul in the face of uncertainty in my life. Contentment in my soul in the midst of a consumeristic world. Calm, quiet, rest, secure. I mean, is there anything more beautiful and more compelling than a calm and quiet soul? My grandfather was like this. Anytime I'd get around him, no matter what was going on in my life, you come in, you sit down with grandpa, it was just, you know people like this, don't you? Calm and quiet soul, deep, humble dependence upon God. People that have maybe been through it and know who God is, that he is faithful. Is there anything more beautiful than this in the world? David gives us in verse two, an image to ponder and then a pattern to follow. An image to ponder and a pattern to follow. Let's talk about the image first. He says, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. There are really two ways in which scholars will interpret what this means. I'll just give both of them to you, and you can choose whichever one you like. Okay, Um, here's the first one. It's this image, something David is giving us, this image of a baby who has just finished nursing. Okay, and if you have kids or if you've been around kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My wife used to call this, uh, the baby was milk drunk, all right? So it's like, you know, just that, that position, that posture of just satisfied, that sinking into a deep sleep after a baby is, you know, fed, resting, trusting, relaxed, comforted upon its mother. Perhaps even as they journeyed the ancient Israelites, as they journeyed to Jerusalem every uh, those three times a year, that hard, arduous journey, perhaps this was a common occurrence of, 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 of the whole families of women with their children making this journey, and moms nursing babies. and so they would sing this song and pray this prayer, really a real vivid image to them to remind them that God alone satisfies their souls that on this journey toward God, they can rest in him and, 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 and they can trust him like, a, like an infant resting upon the chest of his or her mother. They can believe that God provides for and comforts and cares for his people. And so he's saying, so you can too. You can calm down. You can level out. You can relax into God's sovereign grace in your life. But there are others, the majority of scholars, that actually interpret this a little bit different. Rather than a child who just finished nursing, an infant who just finished nursing, there's some who think this is more likely an older child or a fully weaned child. In fact, there are examples, even in Scripture of this. Genesis 21, verse 8, tells us about when Isaac had been fully weaned from Sarah and that a great feast was held. We see this multiple times in the Old Testament a significant milestone when a child is fully weaned. And so in other words, what this is, others would say, is the image of a matured child, a matured, dependent child who has learned to trust his mother rather than that fervent, panicked kind of hunger of an infant. When an infant is ready to feed and they're crying and they're panicky, but instead a fully weaned child who can crawl up in the lap of mom and trust, the weaned child has learned to rest in his mother's arms, that mother will not neglect or abandon him or her. Listen to what one scholar writes. This comes from Arthur Weiser. He says, <clears throat> "Excuse me, The Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests in his mother's arms, happy in being with her. No desire now comes between him and his God. For he is sure that God knows what he needs before he asks. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own hunger and learns to love her for her own sake, so the Christian, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. His life's center of gravity has shifted and now rests no longer in himself, but in God. And here's the deal. Regardless of which interpretation you prefer, there's really one clear application. And it's this, that when we give up on trying to be God in our own life, when we embrace who He is and who we are and we humble ourselves and we crawl up into the lap of God, it produces a peace and a rest in the soul that this world can't hold a candle to. You know, We have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion. And this world in which he is working in majors in things like noise and hurry and crowds and confusion and uncertainty. Our suburban culture majors in keeping up with the Joneses. But in the presence of God, a sovereign, gracious God, there is calm and peace and rest. What a gift. You know, when you've experienced the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, when, when you've experienced as someone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus, when you've experienced the love of God, the secure identity as a son and daughter of God, when you've, when you've experienced the bright future of a coming kingdom that was purchased for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who Philippians 2 says, though he were equal with God, he, 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 Jesus was God. He considered equality with God as nothing to be grasped, but Philippians 2 says he humbled himself, Jesus did, for you, for for me, for the haughty, for the know-it-alls, for the ones living for their own glory and seeking their own name, the ones who have made a mess of things in their own human pride. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself. Don't forget that this is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. And how did he come? Did he come on the white war horse? He came humbled on the donkey. And then we see Palm Sunday, the the arrogant and the proud chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, thinking that Jesus was going to come in and that he was going to defeat Rome and raise them up and make them great. But not Jesus. No, he was submitted to the Father Humbly dependent upon the Father. He wasn't waging war against Rome. He was waging war against sin and death. Philippians 2 says he was so humble. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. When you know this kind of love, when you see God as this kind of God and all of his beauty and grace and humility and glory, it does something for you. You no longer need to run around competing and comparing. When you know this God, when you have this gospel, you no longer need to seek greatness of your own. You no longer need to wake up each morning and live each day fretting and fighting to control outcomes. You no longer have to work your knuckles to the bone to try and be someone great when you know this God, this humble Christ. Instead, you can humble yourself. Turn to him. Crawl up in his lap. Give it all over to him. You can stop and you can be still. You can breathe. You can quiet and calm your soul like childlike, like a child in faith. You see, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can give you this. Amen? And this is what David is pointing us forward to in this psalm. The coming king, Jesus. He's saying, settle down. Sober up recalibrate your life, put your hope in God from this time forth and forevermore. What hope? What hope? I want to ask you, will you do that this morning? Really simple. Will you just receive the invitation of verse 3? Will you hope in the Lord, this humble Christ, this glorious King who is sovereign and gracious and good? Would you hope in Him? You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, I just want to invite you, would you turn over to him? Would you give your life over to him? Would you stop trying to be your own God? How's that working for you? How's it working? Would you stop trying to make God in your own image? Would you just turn it all over to this humble Christ this morning? Would you try things his way? Would you repent of your pride and receive the forgiveness of sin that is offered to you in Jesus Christ? Hear me. He stands ready right now to receive you. Would you turn to him? If that's you, I'll be in the back door. I'll be back by the doors here in a minute and when we respond and I would love to pray with you. I would love to help you meet Jesus today and let your soul finally sigh and breathe. You know, if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, Really the call is the same for us. Just turn to Jesus. Spurgeon said this about Psalm 131. He said, "Though this is one of the shortest psalms to read, it is the longest psalm to learn. This is a lifelong thing for us, tending our soul. Would you let Psalm 31 131 become a tool in your devotion to Christ? I want to invite you to turn from pride. What is it that the Holy Spirit has revealed to you this morning? Would you give that over to King Jesus, the humble King? Would you recalibrate your soul this morning and take a breath? Would you re anchor your hope in the exalted Christ? Would you renew your faith? Would you relax into the loving arms of your Savior? Hear me, He's got you. He's got this world also. You know, what the world needs from us is not more faithless and hectic, hypocritical Christians. What the world needs from us on this Easter week is it needs a calm and peaceful presence. It needs faithful presence. It needs people who trust God deeply and are living in real ways, living out their faith in real ways. The world needs a confident church, a calm church. And so let's do that. Let's renew our faith in him. Let's hope in him from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. God, we say to you now together that you are God and you are good. You are great. You know all. You have all power and authority. You've given us your spirit. God, you are in all places holding all things together. You are holding the very basic details of our life together, working them for our good. We believe that. Your word tells us that. And you hold all creation together, willing um, all of heaven and all of earth toward redemption in your son, Jesus. We breathe, we rest, we calm, we quiet our souls before you. We thank you that we call you Father. We thank you that we know you. We thank you for the hope of the gospel, that we have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. Lord, help us to use this psalm this week to tend our souls. That it would bear the fruit of the Spirit in our life, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Have your way with us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.